I recently heard a story about American soldiers during World War II that were part of these reconnaissance teams, those who were scout out the German position, finding out where the enemy was. And one day this reconnaissance team went out, they, they left their camp, and they had to, but to go further, they had to cross an American land minefield. So the mines were clearly marked, but they had to be, you know, kind of be careful where they walked. But once they got beyond the minefield, it wasn't very long after they entered the forest when they came under heavy machine gun fire from the Germans. It turned out the enemy wasn't very far away. And so they were pinned down. They had to take cover. Advancement or, nor retreat was an option, so they had to just remain under cover for, for hours. Eventually, the blue sky turned gray, and it filled with clouds. And eventually, it began to snow. It, 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 it was basically a blizzard, and it, it snowed, began to snow so heavily that it was hard to see anything. So visibility was really low, and so they decided that this is our chance to go ahead and to retreat back to camp since the Germans can't see us. And so they went back. But then they made it to the edge of that minefield they had to cross at the beginning. But now that it had snowed so heavily, the markings of the mines were now covered. It was anyone's guess to where these explosives were. So the leader of the platoon brought everyone together and said, okay, we're going to go single file. I'm going to go first. But you need to step where I step. Put your boots where my footprints are. We're going to leave one track in this field and leave about 30 yards in between us so that if I happen to step on a mine, I'll be the only one who's killed. So they make it across the field and miraculously, they, they don't step on a mine. They make it across safely. But later, as the snow started to melt, they could go back and see where their footprints were, but they could also now see the mines and they had saw that they had neatly stepped right over a mine. But a lesson we can take from this story is that sometimes in life, in order to get where you want to go, or in order to accomplish a mission or even develop a skill, it's wise to follow in the steps of one who's been there before. What we're talking about here is imitation. You could call it discipleship. And discipleship is a word, of course, that comes from the word disciple, which we first read about in the Gospels. But I would argue, conceptually, overall, we can see discipleship from the very beginning. Go back to creation. What is God doing in creation? Many theologians have pointed out that God's act in creation is this uh, pattern of forming and filling. God forms the space and he fills it. He forms the sky. He fills it with light and things that fly, like sparrows and red-tailed hawks and cicadas. God forms the sea and fills it with things that swim, phytoplankton, blue whales, bottlenose dolphins. God forms the land, fills it with land creatures, bison, Bengal tigers, golden doodles, or the, or the wolf that golden doodles came from. And, of course, humanity. 
And God forms humanity in his image to represent him. But in that representation, he's invited them to imitate him in this pattern of forming and filling. Have dominion and subdue the earth. This is an invitation to help form and give shape to the land, form culture, form civilization. Fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. A pattern of forming and filling. From the very beginning, as God's representatives, we are imitating him and walking in his steps in the within the capacities he's given us to. But of course, we see this imitation pattern in, what, uh, in the passage that we had just read. But let's remember, in Luke, or sorry, in Acts, Luke writes at the beginning of Acts, kind of the... The, you could almost call it the thesis statement or the, the main, uh, a really important verse in Acts 1.8 where he says to the disciples before he ascends, Jesus says, you will receive power and the spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the verse that precedes what we had just read in verse 31, it talks about how the church was growing in Judea and in Samaria. So what's next? the mission to the ends of the earth. And this week and in the coming weeks, we'll begin to see us getting kind of onto the on-ramp to the mission to the Gentiles and the rest of the world. But Peter, empowered by the Spirit, walks in imitation of Jesus. So it says Peter's traveling about the country. He's going and visiting the Lord's people, visiting the saints. He's kind of on a bit of a shepherding mission, you can say. He's, he's checking in. He's bringing encouragement, perhaps even some teaching and training. And he goes near the coast of the sea uh, to a town called Lydda, where he encounters a man named Aeneas, who was paralyzed and on, and on a mat on the ground. And Luke tells us that he was paralyzed in this condition for eight years, lest we misunderstand and assume that he just threw his back out playing golf the day before. No, this was a serious, chronic, long-term condition. But Peter had been in this situation before, and he was in this situation with Jesus, and he saw what Jesus did with, in, in times like this. He saw Jesus say to people, take up your mat and walk. And so Peter says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Now, Notice the language here. Peter doesn't say, I heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. So he recognizes it's not a power of his own, but it's a bit of a delegated power. It's Jesus' power. And yet, unless Peter is there, does Aeneas get healed? So what we have here is this identity thing. There's a oneness between Jesus and Peter, this, this unity. It makes me think of when Paul writes... I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So we have this profound union, this mysterious thing that we can't quite fully understand. But when, and somehow when Aeneas encounters Peter, he's also encountering Jesus. And so he gets up, and as a result... The, pe the people of Lydda turn to the Lord. For the second half of this story, 
we have disciples who are in a nearby town called Joppa. Joppa was about 12 miles from Lydda. And so the disciples send for Peter because one named Tabitha had passed. And Tabitha was dear to the people of Joppa. Peter, or Luke, gives her a bit of an epitaph, one who was full of good deeds and helped the poor. And as Peter goes, he's gr- greeted by these mourning widows. And widows had a you know, particularly hard time in these days with no one to provide for them. They were at the mercy of others. And it seems that Tabitha herself had started a bit of a ministry of mercy among the widows. And they were showing Peter clothes that she had made, likely clothes that she had made for them. So Peter goes to where her body was, and he has everyone leave the room. Why does he do this? Once again, Peter has been in this situation before, and he was in this situation with Jesus. Peter had seen each of the three accounts in the Gospels we have of Jesus raising someone from the dead. In this particular case, may have reminded Peter of a time when Jesus rose a 12-year-old little girl, uh, the daughter of a man named Jairus. And what Jesus did is that he removed everyone from the room except for three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the girl's parents. So here, Peter does likewise. He has everyone leave the room. He wanted no distraction or no obstacle to his faith as he retreated to be with the Father to receive power. And so after he prays, he says to her, Tabitha, arise. She opens her eyes, turns and looks at him and sits up. He takes her by the hand and he helps her up. Now, there are a number of parallels between this account and the account where Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus, even from, um, in, in regards to language. Because in Mark's account of Jesus raising the daughter of Jairus, Mark interrupts his Greek flow of thought and tells us the Aramaic that Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke the language of Aramaic. And what he said to this little girl was, Talitha kum, little girl arise. And if Peter spoke Aramaic to Tabitha, which he likely did in this place, he would have said to her, Tabitha kum, little deer arise. It's one letter difference between Talitha kum and Tabitha kum. It's as if Peter is imitating Jesus. He's going by the script almost to the letter. It's also worth considering the Greek used here. Because Luke records for us in the Greek, uh, the Greek word here is anestomy, tabitha anestomy. It's the same word he, use, he uses for Aeneas, Aeneas anestomy, arise. And it's the same to describe Jesus' resurrection. So Aeneas, arise from your paralysis. Tabitha, arise from death. The same word as Jesus arising from his own death. But there's something that we need to consider here, and that is the fact that Aeneas rose from his paralysis, but that didn't solve all of his problems, did it? Because one day, Aeneas himself would die. And Tabitha, though she rose from death, she too would one day, perhaps at an older age, she too would die again, unless there's some 2,000-year-old woman in the Mediterranean that we don't know about, 
Tabitha would die again. But Jesus rose in a resurrected body that would never die again. And that is a signpost that everyone who is in Christ will also raise in these resurrected bodies that would never die again in a resurrected creation. But what we have both with Aeneas and with Tabitha are signposts of that kingdom to come where there is no paralysis and there is no death. And with these signposts of the kingdom, the people recognize this. The people of Joppa also recognize this. And like the people of Lydda, many of them turn to the Lord. These signs confirm the message of the apostles. Now, we may hear a story like this, and I think there may be some of us, myself included, who think, you know, yeah, following in the footsteps of Jesus, imitating Jesus, that sounds great, but let's face it, that's, that's for the elite. That's for people with a certain pedigree. That's for people who went to seminary. That's for people who are on the mission field. As if there's some sort of varsity team and junior varsity team in Christianity. There's all-stars and there's people who sit the bench. There's first class and economy class. We tend to think that, but let's test that theory and consider the life of Peter. We've done such a thing before, but let's check Peter's resume. Peter himself shows great self-awareness when, when he first meets Jesus. He's been fishing all night, hasn't caught anything. Jesus says, put down one more time. And he, Peter says, okay, well, if you say so. Ends up with this massive catch that he can barely even drag into his boat. And he says, away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Later on, Peter becomes the first to confess Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus affirms this, but when he goes on to say that the Christ would go to Jerusalem and die, Peter says, not on my watch. This shall never happen to you. Peter may have meant well, but he didn't always get it. And in an account that I've mentioned a number of times lately, on the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter takes up a sword and cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest. Perhaps he has in mind something like, the shot heard around the world in the Battle of Lexington and Concord during the American uh, Revolutionary War, that perhaps he thought he would go down in the history books as the one who struck first in order to you know, set Israel to liberation from the Romans. But that's not exactly how the story went down. And of course, within a number of mere hours, in spite of insisting to Jesus that he would follow him to imprisonment and death, Peter denies even knowing Jesus, and more than once, more than twice. So how's that for a resume? Does Peter seem like the kind of, the kind of guy you would choose to follow up, to, to, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to carry on the mission? I'm not sure that he is, by our standards. But this is, encouragement. this is an encouragement for me, and I hope it is for you too, that God doesn't always choose those with the best resume. He often chooses the weak. He often chooses the least likely, the non-extraordinary. There's days where I wake up and look in the mirror and I say, well, this is what you have to work with today, Lord. Good luck. But there's also a word, for grace in the a word of grace in the life of Peter. And it's after Jesus resurrects 
in the Gospel of Mark. The, uh, an angel uh, appears to the women, tells him that you know, uh, tells them that Jesus has been resurrected, and he says to them, "Go tell the disciples and Peter to meet Jesus." Why include and Peter? Well, during Peter's last denial, he locked eyes with Jesus, so he knew that Jesus knew. And so to hear a report of these women saying Jesus wants to see his disciples, Peter may sit there thinking, he's not talking about me. But this and Peter is a word of grace. Yes, Peter, even you too, even after what you did, I still want you to follow me. And and Peter is a word of grace in our life as well. He wants you too. He's calling you to follow him. And in John's account, after Jesus resurrects, Jesus uh, recommissions Peter three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? At the end of it all, he says to him what he said at the beginning, follow me. Literally, walk the road that I have walked. Put your feet where I have stepped. Now, this passage, it ends with Peter staying in Joppa with some time with a man named Simon who was a tanner. We could overlook this and, and just consider it as something that Luke added, just a detail. But let's stop and think about it. Simon was a tanner, one who worked with the carcasses of dead animals in order to make leather. There's a reason that most tanners lived by the sea. It was because there was a breeze. This was not the most pleasant-smelling job. In fact, rabbis, you know, <laughs> rabbis said to, to tanners, give your wives permission to divorce you if they can't handle the stench. They said, woe to the man who becomes a tanner. It was really considered an unclean job. And perhaps this was preparation for Peter to live with one who was considered unclean because he and God were about to have a very important conversation about what was clean and unclean. Stay tuned for that. It's also interesting that this happens in Joppa when we consider elsewhere in the scriptures where Joppa is mentioned. We also find Joppa in the Old Testament in a book written by a prophet called Jonah. God calls Jonah to go to a city called Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire, to go to Gentiles to, to preach against them, to preach that their sins had come up to the Lord and he was going to do something about it, so he called them to repent. But these were Jonah's enemies, so he goes in the exact opposite direction. He intends to sail for Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain, basically the end of the known world. If you saw it on a map beyond that, <laughs> there be dragons. And where does Peter, or so where does Jonah leave? Where does he sail from to get to Tarshish? He leaves from Joppa. So in the Old Testament, Joppa was where Jonah rejected his mission to the Gentiles, but Joppa would also be where Simon Peter, son of Jonah, would receive his commission to the Gentiles. I thought that was just some interesting commentary worth noting. But I mentioned before how God doesn't always use extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. 
I think it's also worth talking about the fact that following in the steps of Jesus and imitating Jesus doesn't always involve doing extraordinary things. Look, by all means, we should continue to pray for healing and even pray, seeking, even raising the dead and trying to do all these incredible things. By all means, we should pursue and try to do those things. But sometimes following Jesus is very ordinary, is very everyday and not miraculous. I think of Tabitha in this passage who was full of good deeds and helped the poor, how she made clothes for the widows. Is she imitating Jesus? Well, in a way. We don't have any accounts where Jesus made clothes for people, but is she imitating his love for his neighbors? And this is, I guess you could call this, this is where we get to the innovation bit. Because Mike's talked about before how discipleship is information, the teaching, the content, and all that. Imitation, imitating a life lived, but you move on to innovation. And I think in this case, innovation is something like imitating the character, but applying it in fresh and new ways. And Christians have been doing stuff like this for hundreds of years, imitating Jesus, but also innovating at the same time what that might look like. And I'm not saying that uh, Christians have always got this right, there are times where our footsteps don't perfectly align with the footsteps of Jesus. In fact, sometimes our footsteps have gone in the exact opposite direction, and that's, that's a, a sad admission. But there are times when Christians have gotten it absolutely right, where you can't discern the footsteps of Jesus from the church. And this has led to many important developments in history. For example, as Christians have followed in the footsteps and have imitated Jesus in regards to having compassion for people and charity for people, an innovative result has been the development of healthcare and hospitals. There's um, the foremost expert in the early history of hospitals, a guy named Gary Ferngreen. He's a, he's a PhD. He wrote in a survey published by John Hopkins University. He said, the hospital was, in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purposes that Christian hospitals were created to serve. Which is why many hospitals are called St. Jude's or St. Matthew's or such and such Baptist, Presbyterian, or Methodist hospitals because a hospital in its origins is a Christian institution. And I'm so thankful that in every major city in the world today, there's at least, there, there's a number of hospitals. That's good for the world. Another way that um, God's people have imitated Jesus, we have imitated Jesus by um, loving God, attempting to love God with all of our minds. And an innovative result of that has been a rise in education. In the ancient world, Education was for the rich and the elite. But, Christian, but Christians brought education to the common people because we're people of a book. And we wanted people to be able to read and understand this book. And so where Christianity spread, literacy and understanding spread. And Christianity also led to the translation of many languages because we wanted 
people to be able to read the scriptures in their own language. And this is also applies to higher learning. You may have heard of institutions such as Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Dartmouth, these Ivy League schools and all the very early uh, institutions established on this continent in its, the beginning days. Each of those institutions were started by Christians for Christian purposes. Sadly, today they no longer serve those purposes. But it's a little bit interesting and a little bit ironic that for the academic atheist who wants to argue against Jesus, who wants to read, write, and argue against Jesus, he can only do so because he or she was educated in an educational system that exists because of Jesus and because of the followers of Jesus. In addition to following Jesus and loving God with all your mind, another um, innovative result of that is the rise of modern science. We have all benefited from modern science. And there's a bit of a myth out there that there's a war between science and faith in God. It's actually not true because science itself doesn't say anything. It's scientists and how they interpret and the philosophical grid that they use to interpret. Those are the ones who make claims, but science is a tool. It itself doesn't say anything. But it is, but modern science, the, the fathers of modern science were men of faith. Science sprouted in the soil of a Christian milieu. So we have these guys who uh, scientific laws were named after them. They have guys like Robert Boyle, the father of, of, the father of chemistry. You have Johannes Kepler, a German astronomer, uh, Sir Isaac Newton. These were men of faith. And they believed they could do science in the first place because they believed that the natural world had an order, and they believed it had an order because somebody ordered it. Or as C.S. Lewis said, they believed there was laws in nature because they believed in a legislator. They also believed they could observe the order in nature because they were given rational minds, and they believed they had rational minds because they were created by a rational mind. They couldn't begin to fathom how a rational mind could come from an irrational and random process. They also saw what they were doing with their science as an act of worship. Johannes Kepler said that I had the intention of becoming a theologian, but I now see how God is in my endeavors also glorified in astronomy. But finally, another way that Christians have uh, imitated and walked in the steps of Jesus and the innovative result has been human rights inequality. In the ancient world, especially in Greek thought, there was a natural hierarchy of plants and animals and people. As According to Aristotle, some men were made to rule and others were meant to be ruled. But a, um, a, a French philosopher, actually an atheist named uh, Luc Ferry, writes in a book called uh, A Brief History of Thought. He says, Christianity was to introduce the notion that men are equal in dig dignity, an unprecedented idea at the time and one to which our world owes its entire democratic inheritance. This idea may seem self-evident, but it was literally unheard of at the time, and it turned an entire world order upside down. And this is how we get to 
the, the creation of this country with the founding fathers who wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It wasn't self-evident to the Greeks or anybody in the ancient world, but because these men grew up in a Christian way of thinking, they saw that because we are made in the image of God, we have these inalienable rights. But if you take away the creator, those rights become subjective and arbitrary, and therefore alienable. So any secular person who wants to champion human rights, equality, and justice does, can do so because they were privileged to grow up in a Western culture that had a Christian view underneath it. So these are just a number of ways that Christians have sought to imitate Jesus and the effects that it has had on history. And you could call it non-miraculous ways, but very important ways. But what about us today? How can we consider our own walk, our own imitation of Jesus? What might that look like? It's such a, it's such a broad thing to think about, isn't it? If I just told you, oh, well, go in peace, everyone. Let's go imitate Jesus. Well, let's narrow it down a little bit, and perhaps we can view it through the lens of the five capitals. Let's think of these things that God has given us to invest. Let's think of spiritual capital. This is the power, the, the gifting, the way God has gifted us, and, and the wisdom. How can we grow in power and wisdom, and how can we follow in the footsteps of Jesus in using power and wisdom? But perhaps what we would do to, to be helped here is not just try to imagine how Jesus would use it, but to follow someone who already looks like Jesus in these areas. If you want to know how to pray, go find somebody who knows how to pray, hang out with them, and learn to imitate them. If you want to know how to share your faith or how to counsel someone or how to heal, follow somebody who knows how to do that and begin to imitate their life. But also within our spiritual life, we think about, um, you know, we all face temptation. But you know who else also has? Jesus. In three of the Gospels, we have these temptation narratives, and in two of them, we get very specific words of how Jesus handled it and what he said. And we can imitate him. He has showed us where to step and how to step over the landmines. What about relational capital? What does it look like to follow in the steps of Jesus in our relationships? In our marriages, does Jesus not have a spouse? Are we not the bride of Christ? And how is Christ with his bride? Well, he's patient. He's compassionate. He's self-giving. Is there anything there to imitate within your marriage? How about as a parent? Did Jesus not shepherd others? Perhaps there's lots we can learn about parenting through noticing how Jesus shepherded people. If we could close our eyes and imagine how would Jesus be at our dinner table? How would he be engaging with people? How would he be encouraging to people? How would he be listening to people's, how their day went? What kind of sense of humor would he have? And how would he be really 
not overly concerned about the small messes made on the table. Is there anything there that we could imitate? What kind of coworker or employee would Jesus be? What kind of neighbor would Jesus be? Well, we know that the mode of, the, that of discipleship for Jesus was invitation and challenge. Is there anyone in your life who you need to take a posture of uh, imitation or invitation with? Inviting them to, into relationship, extending encouragement, perhaps even extending forgiveness. And is there anyone in your life you might need a posture more that's more like challenge as you wisely seek to speak the truth in love? What about physical capital that's measured in time and energy? Well, let's take time. What was Jesus' schedule like? What sort of priorities did Jesus tend to each day but also notice how Jesus allowed for flexibility for those interruptions. Because let's, let's face it, Jesus was constantly being interrupted. Somebody always needed something. So how do we put first things first, set our priorities, but also leave room for spontaneity and for interruption? Also keeping in mind how Jesus was intentional about taking retreats to be with the Father, to pray to have intimacy with the Father and to be empowered, to be filled so that he could be poured out. Are you scheduling retreats? And I'm talking about more than just a vacation once a year. Do you have a regular rhythm of retreat with the Father? What about intellectual capital? Your knowledge, your creativity. How can you use your knowledge and creativity in service to others? I know that myself, I am not exactly what you would call a handyman. I, I'm not a Mr. Fix-It, but I have been so blessed by people who know stuff. What about, finally, financial capital? Is there anything that Jesus models for us in regard to money? Well, we know that Jesus had financial backers and that his needs and his disciples' needs as they traveled around were met. Uh, we also have this occasion where Jesus has Peter catch some fish who happen to have coins in their mouths so they can pay some temple tax. But we don't exactly have Jesus' Excel spreadsheet of his budget. But we can imagine that as one who was wholly committed to the Father, that there would be plenty of lines, plenty of space for generosity and giving for the sake of the kingdom. So there's something there to imitate. So what's it going to be for you? That's something that you have to answer for yourself. You have to take some inventory. But right now, what we want to do is, as we end, I want to offer an invitation. If you're here and you're recognizing that this desire to become more like Jesus, to, to imitate him, maybe you're recognizing how you're leaving footprints in addition to his footprints. They're not exactly matching up, but you want them to become more like one another. You want to be more in sync, more in step with Jesus. You want to come and pray. You want to pray to the Father to give you both the wisdom of what that looks like, but also the will to surrender and the will to be even 
to be even to begin to take that first step, we invite you to come up front here. There's nothing magical about this space, but we're not only spiritual beings, we're physical beings as well. And sometimes spiritual realities are best expressed with our physical bodies. So we invite you to come. The prayer team will come alongside you and pray with you as your ally. But if you would just come, is there anyone in here with a growing desire to want to be like Jesus? I invite you to go ahead and come. And Chris will come and, and he'll play and as, as we do business with the Father. Is there anyone else? to come up front.